Hey everyone, this is John, and this mini episode features a conversation I had with my friend Claudio Morales, who is working with street vendors, food entrepreneurs, small business owners in LA. And we had a conversation in the past about how her work was intersecting with people who were trying to decide how to navigate that space with being either new parents or prospective parents. Anyway, this is a really short conversation and there's a longer one that we should have with her and her business partner. And I hope you find it really interesting and helpful as well. All right, so I'm here with my friend, uh, longtime friend, Claudia, who who I was fortunate to become friends with at work and we had lots of laughs and did a lot of great work. Uh, You're in LA, so why don't you do a quick introduction of yourself um, in terms of what you're up to now, what, where you're from, uh, what's driving you. That's, that's a whole lot. So I'm going to try to, to keep track of all of it. But as you mentioned, I'm, I'm back in LA now. When I first met John, I was living in the Bay area. Um, and you know, we started to work together and that was about, I want to say almost 10 years ago. I've been um, back in LA now for about, I want to say seven years, um, traveling a little bit outside of the country, living in Mexico for a while, and then uh, jumped around uh, when I got back, was out in Arizona for a little bit. And then finally, uh, I am an Angelina, I am a native to LA, so I thought it was time for me to come back home and um, kind of figure out some things. And since I've been back, I decided to go back to school did a, a drastic uh, career shift, in my opinion. So, you know, my, my background formerly had been working in the social sciences, psychology, mostly community-based work. And, you know, uh, 25 years later, I thought it was time for me to do something different. So I jumped into business, uh, went to grad school to get my uh, specialized MBA in social entrepreneurship. And Still thought that it was important for me to be able to use my skill set to to work with my community, and so that brought me to what I'm doing now, which is um, still business related, but really promoting social entrepreneurship among immigrant and minority business owners who are trying to figure out how to have successful businesses. Um, primarily focused on food retail. That's what uh, a lot of the projects that I'm working on now and. That actually has taken me into different areas, working on policy, um, working on business startups, consulting with the SB. You know, you have a revolutionary heart. You're uh, you're community minded, and you know don't really adhere to the the mainstream BS in terms of things. You know, like you see it from a a very people first kind of perspective, right? Absolutely. And I I have to say that was probably a really big struggle for me at the beginning, because coming in with the business lens, it really required for me to shift that a little bit. So going from a people center to balancing people and profits has definitely been a journey for me. I don't think it's a tension, but I think sometimes it's a it's a false tension thinking about business and people first. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think historically, right, we've we've gotten a certain um, a certain narrative about that from a particular segment of, of 
folks that decide to go into business. And I think that's why the work that I do is so fascinating to me because I get to hear from people that fall outside of that. When we think about business, it's typically, you know, they're white, they're male, um, of a particular socioeconomic background. And so to hear what the experiences are of people that fall outside of that, I think helps to provide a more well-rounded view for people that might be interested in business. You know, the American Express has a small business Saturdays and they have this big thing about small business. And, you know, politically, it's a it's a it's a pawn in conversations. And usually when people are talking about small business, they're talking about, quote unquote, Main, Main Street America. And what does that really mean? But uh, people of color and immigrants have been owning small businesses forever. Right. Oh, absolutely. Talk about the intersection. Right. When we think about. I, I mean, again, it's part of the narrative that we don't hear often, and depending on who you're talking to. So as a history of the nation, we know it was built on the backs of um, immigrants, whether that was celebrated or not, or whether it was recognized as an entrepreneur or, you know, cheap labor. Again, it depends on who you talk to. But I think that, like, that's the beauty of it. And, you know, uh, I've had so many conversations about this with my business partner, Barney Santos, because I think he coming from a, a, a long background of uh, entrepreneurship, he's like a serial entrepreneur, he can speak to how really small businesses are the foundation for this nation. And when we think about corporations and we hear the stories about, you know, what that looks like, it's just such a small snapshot. Right, right. And I was, I'm curious to you have much more experience with it. I mean, my experience with small businesses are the, the, the people that, you know, I've fortunately been able to meet that run small businesses, whether it was back home in Fremont or here in Oakland, who are hella cool. Like they're, they're super community oriented and down and, um, you know, understand what it means to have a community in terms of their business. Uh, but that's all I know. I mean, I know it more from a consumer place. What have you seen regarding small business owners in the, you know, just the, the landscape of, um, I guess, like progress, like community progress. Yeah, I would have to say, um, and, and, you know, I'll have to be the first one to say that I become a convert, right? Prior to going to business school, I was that person that was just convinced that uh, business is evil. People that go into business are greedy um, but you know, I, a lot of it, I had to develop my own identity as an entrepreneur that then I could support other people in redefining, you know, what, what it meant for them to be entrepreneurs. So knowing that I, I work primarily with immigrant and, you know, minority business owners, um, a lot of us don't even identify as entrepreneurs. We, we call it the hustle, right? We call it making ends meet. We call it, you know, um, not wanting to work for somebody else. We call it a whole lot of things before, we we formalize it or we we consider ourselves part of that you know mainstream group of business owners and it you know after you kind of get through that and and start to identify as a as an entrepreneur you understand that there's power in that um both in in sustaining your livelihood and being kind of like your own boss but then i think a lot of the work that i do is helping those same business owners understand the responsibility and the opportunity to become involved in, in your community. So a lot of what we've seen 
particularly now, you know, when, when we talk about like the generational differences and the millennials and the younger generation coming up, their standard of where they choose to spend their money is dictated by different things, right? They're now looking at uh, the social responsibility that a business adopts. They're looking at, I want to be able to financially support and buy from this business if I know that, you know, they're trying to help the community. And so business owners understanding that have the option um, to implement business practices that make their business profitable, but that also give back to the community. And that can look a lot of different ways, right? And so um, it's not just about how you price your products, but it's the type of products, where you source, you know, your products, um, the relationship that you have, the opportunities that you provide to the community um, for those that might be interested in going into business. Are there internships available? But then taking a step back when we think about economic development, right, looking at small cities particularly where the industry has changed, right, when we're starting to think about there's no more jobs, what does that look like? People still have to eat. People still have to make a living. Now we have small business owners that are coming in into these um, small cities and saying, I want to be part of revitalizing my community. I want to be part of creating, you know, jobs, to, of creating economic opportunities for residents so that people don't have to travel outside. Um, I mean, this kind of takes us into a rabbit hole because, it, you know, when we think about food justice um, and people having access to healthy food and usually them having to travel, you know, long distances to, to have quality um, produce available to them, we're having small business owners who are saying, hey, I can open up a small corner store in this community and provide that to them, right? Or I can work with them to, to bring those resources because, you know, a lot of times when, and this happened to, to us when we were um, working on Boulevard Market, you know, we were approaching traditional investors that, you know, were looking at the project um, from a very different point of view. They were looking at it as, what are the highest profit margins that I can get? And not really wanting to concede to say, oh, well, there's also a social impact that can also be measured. And in some cases, actually will raise the profit that you can make because, as I said, people are starting to look at those things now, right? And so when you start to define what profitability looks like, not just in numbers, but otherwise, writing better um, health outcomes because people are eating better now, or, you know, better job prospects because now there's more businesses opening up and, and you know, people can can get those jobs and, you know, higher education levels because now that people are exposed to different career paths, well, that in part makes them want to go to school and learn more, whether it's trade school, whether it's a four-year, you know, whatever the case might be. So when we think about progress and business, I think business is a very real tool to help people um secure their future, um, but then also be able to leave a legacy, um, a positive legacy for the next generation. Yeah, it's a lot of what, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, health, health equity or, you know, access to healthy lifestyles and not even lifestyles, but just access to health period, whether that's healthcare or healthy options for food. That's, the argument is that that's supposed to lead to, you know, much more economic stability for a community, right? Because then people are going to work, people are going to school, 
people aren't missing work because of their kids being sick or them being sick. And then that means that people can finish school or finish work shifts or whatever the case is. And then that would should be in turn bringing in more revenue for families to spend. Exactly. Well, the, you know, the social determinants, um, I would say those three, there was a, a report that I like to cite often, which is the human development index. And, you know, it talks about specifically to LA County and it was just talking about those three things. It was talking about employment, education, and health. And you, you can't, one cannot be without the other in terms of the outcomes that we want to see and the improvement for our community. So if you have a hungry person going to school, how well are they going to be able to concentrate if they're having headaches or if their stomach hurts? Um, you know, the attention span is affected or if, you know, they're experiencing any other inequities in their community, um, it, it's really hard for you to not call out sick for work and get paid for those, you know, for those days that you're missing out. I mean, it's also interrelated. And once you kind of take a look at it from that perspective, you find that um, it's important to be able to account for all three when we're talking about um, helping communities you know, come out of like this place of not having enough or, or disinvestment, right? Or being um, left out when we think about, um, you know, investments that are made through federal funds or otherwise. Right. Well, there's the, there's a long, long-standing racist practice of redlining, right? So that is, that means carving out only certain areas where basically non-white people can live and, what that means in terms of economic development is that sometimes or oftentimes it doesn't, that means supermarkets or other options or other, just like a diversity of options isn't there. So it relates back to the small businesses, like what type of small businesses are there? Right. And, you know, like one of the, one of the visual aspects that I know when I'm going into um, a community that is being, uh, has been redlined or has been targeted as a community that essentially isn't going to be cared for, whether it's for school or other resources, is if there's like a payday um, cash check cashing place, right? Exactly, exactly. Or the amount of cigarette stores or liquor only stores, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, when we get to, to, to that part of it, it's interesting because I know I was recently introduced to the notion of, I work a lot with, you know, what's known as food desert communities. And, you know, we've talked about that a little bit, but in the process of me working in that space, then I started to hear about banking deserts, right? Then I started to hear about all these other deserts that exist that together really create blight in a lot of these communities. And kind of like where I, where I was going with this when I, you know, thank you for reminding me about this, but with Boulevard Market, the, the response that we were getting a lot from investors was there's high risk. It's a community where, you know, there's no proof of concept. How do we know that this is going to work? And, you know, when you think about business, everything is a risk. I mean, you know, there's really talented people that spend a lot of time looking at the numbers, making projections. You know, they have to market analysis. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it, right? But it's still your best guess. And when investors or when, you know, governments, look at a community and say it's high risk or it's volatile it's you know there's so many words to describe it. it it's almost the opposite right it's like well isn't that why you would want to invest in that 
But what we see is that those are often the reasons why people say, no, I cannot touch that community. That happens, you know, when we think about um, South Central LA, when we think about Southeast LA, right? There's very particular areas where for years, nobody has wanted to come within, you know, 10 feet to say it's time to spend dollars to really look at all the resources needed to help this community move forward. Right. And then it, it becomes a, one of those things where the residents of those communities are blamed for the issues that are in their communities when obviously, well, not obvious to m- many people, <laughs> obviously to you and to me that it's a much deeper systemic issue. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like now, you know, we start to get into kind of like history of colonized people. Right. And, and everything that comes with that. And, and just for me, I think it's so important to not forget the fact that given all of that, given the history of, of you know, violence and injustice um, that a lot of our community face, the fact that you're still standing here today, like I would rather celebrate that and then help you uh, develop awareness about the opportunities for growth and, and for change. Um, but just to kind of label somebody as like, well, you know, I've heard it too many times. Well, the people don't get ahead because they're lazy, because they don't want to, because they're motivated. Again, it's storytelling and who's telling those stories. Right, right. And I mean, it's the same thing with investors. Like you said, every business prospect is a, is a gamble or a risk, or most are. And then the people who are investing also live in their own paradigm, right? And then if if they have biases going into a, a project that they could possibly invest in, then sure, they're not going to invest in certain things because they already have a, a stereotype or some kind of uh, preconceived notion about a community or a type of business or type of business owner. Oftentimes with, with no real information or, or first-hand experience, right? It's just more, I, I might have heard something in the news or read something somewhere and they can't even remember where it was, but... I, I know for me, one of the like the big realizations was being able to distinguish between business and entrepreneurship, right? And so going back to what we were talking about, I still do put people first because I'm helping people become entrepreneurs, not just identify, but develop the skills that they understand. Being an entrepreneur means being able to navigate uncertainty, being able to you know respond appropriately or as best as possible when unforeseen things happen and that's just the nature of business but you know a lot of people can go to business school can you know um, study business all they want but does that mean that they're an entrepreneur no and and for me again it's the confluence of who better to understand and to assimilate entrepreneurship than immigrants right than people that continually have been marginalized and are always trying to figure out despite those obstacles and those challenges, how to move forward. So it, for me, it almost seems inherent that, you know, uh, people of color, immigrant communities would become entrepreneurs because it's in their blood. They've always had to figure things out. Like you said, it's the hustle, the hustle for survival, the hustle for, I mean, just the day to day. So speaking of that, uh, you're not a parent. <laughs> <laughs> At least you don't Not know. Not officially, no. but oh. I'm all, I can. I, I might be able to, without pissing some people off, I might be able to counter that. But no, I haven't born any children of my own. But we have talked uh, about the the folks that 
the folks that you've worked with and and the there are young parents or new parents that are that you've been able to work with right uh any 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 of those stories you want to share not like getting too soup like too personal because it's not your story but uh like how 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 have they been navigating that space of being an entrepreneur especially in la especially given other circumstances or other uh, characteristics that they're getting into in terms of communities or type of work um and how did that relate to uh your work in particular, like some of the, the policy work you're doing and with the, with the vendors and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I would say um, some of the preliminary work that I did in just understanding um, the needs better and kind of knowing, you know, being able to center people's experiences. I did a lot of uh, formal and informal, you know, interviews with, with uh, emerging business owners, folks that had been hustling, right? If, if they were going into a food business, they had been operating out of their home street vendors. And, you know, one thing that I found that I thought was really interesting was that um, a lot of uh, business owners, whether they had families or not, um, went on to either open up their own business or, or just run a business. The likelihood was greater when they had come from a family that had a history of business, right? And I think a lot of it was because they were just familiar with the notion of like, this is what entrepreneurship is. And so they were more willing to take those risks. But then you kind of see a divergence, right? And then you start to see, for example, people with kids, parents, whether they were new parents or had, you know, older children, they hesitate a lot because now when they think about the risk of, you know, operating a business or starting a business, they're not just thinking about their, their dream of owning a business. Now they're thinking about, will this be able to support my family? Will I be able to pay the rent? Will I be able to provide, you know, the things that my children need to, to not just survive, but to live healthy lives, to thrive, right? And so what I found was that younger parents actually use that as motivation to say, I'm about to have a baby. My baby's really young. I, I need to do this now. I need to start my business. I need to do whatever it takes to have a successful business so that when my child grows up, I can pay for college. I can... I can provide for them maybe the things that I didn't have, you know, that I would want them to have. But then I also, you know, had conversations with, you know, parents who had older children who could easily talk about, well, I've always wanted, you know, I've always dreamed about starting my own business. Or, you know, there was one man in particular that I think about that, you know, he was an older gentleman, had been working in the restaurant business, you know, for, for over 30 years, was very good at his job. And, you know, we talked about, well, if you could open up your own business, what type of business would it be and what type of support do you need? And, you know, we, we, we spent hours talking about that and it just rolled off his tongue. And so when I said to him, well, our program is about that. We want to be able to support you so that you can do that. And he's like, I can't and I won't. And so, you know, we talked a little bit more and he's just like, I can't take that risk. My, my children you know, are too important to me. What I'm doing now is enough for me to provide for them. I just can't take that risk. And, and you know, he was willing to put his, his dream aside, his lifelong dream. He was willing to not do what he knew he was great at for the safety of what he had. And so, you know, far be it for me to tell somebody the decisions that they can make, but, but it, it did make me a little bit sad because it was like, wow, that's a real thing. Like, 
you're having to make a real life choice right now. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one, especially in that stage where uh, there's there's stability in in his current uh, career choice, and having to separate that from these bigger ideas. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and then, I mean I that's mean, just on a on a I would say like a quote unquote like normal situation, right? But then you know also working with parents who have kids that um, have special needs, right? Um, some of the um, you know folks that I've come in contact with either through the incubator program or you know working with some of the other stores that I work with that have kids you know with, with autism, kids that um, just need you know particular type of supports, you know for them it just becomes it's a whole nother level of decision making. Right, and they 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 kind of have to think about um, on all aspects as it relates to their business to say how much time is this going to require for me to be away from my family, right? What sacrifices do I have to make if my child, let's say, has regular doctor's appointments? Will I be missing those because I have to be, you know, working on the business? And one of the things that we help um, you know business owners understand is that at some point. And, and I'll have to credit my business partner um, with this, but you know, we always talk about helping entrepreneurs understand the difference between working on your business and working in your business, right? You can you can spend your whole entire um, business owner life working in your business, and then you turn around and ask yourself, what does that add up to? Versus putting things in place to say, I want to work on my business, I want to help my business grow, but I don't have to be the person that's there eight, ten, twelve hours a day. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we have to wrap up soon. Um, but I'm curious, not but I am curious. Can you talk a little bit about what you did with the vendor and the pol the vendor policy in LA, and any kind of impacts that you've seen since then? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I had the fortune of working on the uh, street vendor campaign um more towards the tail end of it right but a couple of years ago california passed um a law decriminalizing street vendors and so i was involved in working with the county of la to try to start to figure out um what you know type of regulations needed to be put in place um, what kind of systems and processes so that um street vendors can apply for permits that were identified as um needed and just kind of what that whole thing looked like. And so I worked with actual street vendors that had been involved with the campaign for 10 years. And the first thing was that I needed to understand what their experience has been. And we're talking about, again, you know, immigrant um, population mostly are trying to make ends meet and, you know, selling either food or other stuff on the street, you know, being harassed by the police, you know, sometimes having their, you know, stuff thrown away, being cited. It, it becomes a, a cycle of like, you know, once you get cited, now you have money to pay, but you, you're not working anymore because all your stuff was thrown out. So then, you know, now it's starting to like, now you have a criminal record. I mean, it was crazy, right? So the work that I did was try to, number one, inform street vendors of their rights per this law, right? That because it was decriminalized, they could no longer, you know, be cited with a misdemeanor or felony. Um, you know, their record should be expunged. 
but then also having community listening sessions where we invited vendors to talk about what their needs were and for them to also be able to propose solutions, right? And so with that information, we were able to uh, create a report that we shared with the county of LA to say, this is what we feel would be a best practice in rolling out this program. Um, that led to then figuring out, you know, what permits would be needed based on where you were vending, based on what you were selling. Um, but I think the, the biggest impact was to, again, recognize the work of, you know, immigrants that go into any form of entrepreneurship as fundamental to this country because, you know, they're, they're selling, they're making money. In turn, they use that money to then buy things, right, to promote the local economy. But if people are being arrested, if people, you know, are being um, mistreated around this, then what happens? Then people stop having a livelihood. They stop having a way, um, you know, to, to provide for their families. So I, I feel kind of really fortunate to have been part of that because now the county of LA, slowly but surely, the, the, the wheels have been moving very slowly, but, and especially now because of the pandemic, right? Anything food related, um, I think should, you know, it needs that, that level of attention. But for the most part, they, they started to shape a program where, you know, it gave street vendors uh, a voice, but a way to, to make a, a living um, without having to break the law, in other words. You're, it's operational. It's the actions that you're doing to counteract uh, whatever systemic uh, barriers are there that continue to destabilize communities, right? Like with uh, there's financial instability there where people are cited and have to pay for that money. But at the same time, when people have records, then then you know it's so much easier for them to to split up families or have families split up because of you know, you know these minor issues that are criminalized very uh, selectively, right? Uh, where, where, where can they find more information about uh, you and Boulevard Market or anything else that um, might be helpful for them to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're definitely, you know, all up and down the social media. So boulevardmarket.com without the bells, B-L-B-D-M-R-K-T.com. That's the website for the project. Um, we're just wrapping up construction and hoping to to be able to officially open up in the next few months. Um, and that's in Montebello or Downey? This is in Montebello, the city of Montebello. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, similarly, we're on Instagram. Um, you can find us there at BLBDMRKT. Um, yeah. And then um, on Facebook as well. We, we, we definitely... Are excited about that project and want to be able to um, share it with everybody. Okay, and then you you're also recently featured in a LA magazine, right? Oh right, yeah. <laughs> I'm still people are still talking about it, and I'm like, what? Yeah, um, people don't realize this about me, and when I tell them, they laugh. But I'm like, I really am an introvert at heart. And you're super humble. And you're super humble for all the work that you do. So I um, I'm putting you in a weird spot by having you uh, gloat <laughs> a little bit. But if it means being able to talk about the work that I do absolutely. So I um, was honored to be um, highlighted on Voyage LA, which is a local magazine that highlights um, you know local artists, entrepreneurs, um, and likes to share their stories. So um, it's part of their Hidden Gem series. So if you know folks want to check it out, yeah. 
All right, I'll, I will link it up to the episode uh, information so you will see it on your apps and at the webpage. I just want to thank you for getting up on a call real quick and talking about this. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. It's about the flow. I had to say that. It's about the intergenerational, the intergenerational flow. <laughs> flow. So let's, let's do this again. I'd love to.